The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Recently, there was an article posted, and the claim was that scientists could make people fall in love. That scientists have discovered a way to make people fall in love. And this is, a, a woman was writing an article, this is back in January, and she was writing from her personal experience. She's a writer, and um, she, she posted this article on a, uh, on a news site, and she, she blogs, but this news site asked her to, to post this particular article. And her blog picks up a couple hundred readers um, with each post, and she was a little bit concerned that if she posted this personal story of hers that it would get, you know, what's going to happen when a couple thousand people read it at this news site? And she way underestimated the impact of her story because it went viral over the next couple months, these last couple months, and millions of people have been fascinated by her story. And it's all based on a study done about 20 years ago where these psychologists had a class and they decided to do an, uh, a, an experiment with the students in the class about interpersonal interaction and sharing personal things about yourself. So they, they got this this class together and they asked who wanted to participate in this experiment. They didn't tell them what it was about and most of the class wanted to, do, wanted to participate this one semester in several of the classes. So they had dozens of people participating in this. They gave them a short survey asking a little bit about themselves and they filled out the survey and then they just showed up one day for this experiment. And the professors went through these surveys and they paired together complete strangers these complete strangers, they paired them together, but they kind of paired them together with people that they think are, have some similarities, and they paired them together, and then they gave them this list of questions that they had to answer. So they're sitting across from a complete stranger, and there's three sections of questions, and each section gets a little bit more personal and a little bit more vulnerable. And the idea was at the end of this study, how close did these people get? And they, they said the result was remarkable. There were people allegedly who have done this same process who were a complete stranger and at the end began, after these questions, these 36 questions, they at the end of this not only started dating but got married. And these 36 questions have become a phenomenon. This woman wrote that she tested this out. She had, she, there was an acquaintance that she knew. They were sitting at a bar one, one evening, and they began talking about this. This was a man that she knew, and, and she was there, and they began talking about these 36 questions, and they decided to just try it out. They, they kind of knew each other. They worked out at the same gym. They worked at the same university, and so she started. They sat down. She downloaded the questions on her phone, and they began asking these 36 questions. And what she said it was what it felt like was that it was like that a frog in boiling water. The water's getting hotter and hotter, and she said, you don't, I didn't realize, but the longer I was going, the more vulnerable, the more intimate these questions were getting. Now, none of these questions are very, they're not romantic, they're not sexual in nature, they're just questions about who the person is. And so section one of these questions um, are, are pretty, you know, they tell you a little bit about yourself, but they're not super personal. Something like this, before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you are going to say and why? 
Simple, straightforward question. Another question in section one is, what would constitute a perfect day for you? So then they go to section two, another list of questions. Those are a little bit more personal. Things like, what is the greatest accomplishment of your life? How close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? A little bit more personal. It's easing in. As it goes on, it gets even more personal. It says, when did you last cry in front of another person by yourself? Works all the way to questions like this. Share a personal problem and ask the person's advice on he or she, and how he or she might handle it. And this woman writes the story about, the, about how she w- talked through this that evening with this person. By the end of the night, they, this experiment had just so, so moved them that they started dating. And how she ends the article is that I've been dating this person ever since. It's an incredible study about how sharing these, going through these questions, these 36 questions, it, some of them are, are, are about, you know, tell your life story in four minutes. They're very personal questions. They get a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more vulnerable. And it just, it's, people have been writing how it's, have been posting in about how this study has impacted them and, and their relationship. Several people have said they started a relationship with someone that they tried these 36 questions with. Another person said, I'm glad I went through those 36 questions and we broke up. After that, we didn't want to, it was a good thing, good thing for us. But most people have said, and, and again, there's nothing romantic about it. The, the study was done in literally like a laboratory classroom setting. There's not like candles lit and like a violinist standing behind them. It's not like that. But it shows an incredible, uh, incredible part of how we're wired. We're wired in a way that sharing our lives, the details, the vulnerable details of our lives, sharing it with someone else has an incredible power on us. Now, this idea of sharing vulnerably with someone, some of us react differently than others. Like in here right now, there's probably a girlfriend that's saying, I'm doing that this afternoon with my boyfriend we're going to cry and we're going to laugh and then we're going to watch The Notebook and it's going to be a perfect day. Meanwhile, her boyfriend has lasers shooting out of his eyes at me. I hate you. Okay, is what he's thinking right now. Okay. We react differently to this. Some of us are, are more drawn to this. Some of us are more resistant to this kind of idea. But here's what is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Regardless of our past experiences, Regardless of our past relationships, regardless of our personality, what is absolutely true is we are wired for companionship. In other words, we are wired to deeply know someone else, friends, not just romantic relationships, all kinds of relationships. We're wired to deeply know someone else, and we're wired to be deeply known by other people. We're going to look in Genesis chapter 2 this morning and look at how God created us and how we're wired. And we're going to look specifically, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 15. If you'd open with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Now as a reminder, this is, Genesis 1 and 2 are in some ways two different accounts that go side by side of creation. Genesis 1 is just kind of an overview of all of creation, an overview, just a beautiful grand poem about God creating everything. But Genesis 2 jumps back in when God creates the human race, and it tells the story from a different angle. It's more of a narrative. It's more of a story. It unfolds, and we're looking at how he created humanity. We're starting in verse 15. It says this, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, And keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, 
saying, You shall eat, surely you shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now let's just talk about these first few verses and just get some context for what we're about to read. God creates humans, and it says he places them in this garden to work it. Now what do we know about this garden? He says God planted this garden. It's filled with trees. It says it's filled with every tree that's beautiful to look at and good for food. So it is just absolutely, unbelievably lush and, and beautiful. And it's called Eden. The word means something like luxurious bliss. It's an incredible place. And when we think of garden, we think of like a small little backyard, okay? The way it's described, the idea we get, this is a massive, massive, we don't know for sure, but this is probably a massive uh, piece of land here. I mean, for all we know, it could be the size of Broward County. It could be the size of the state of Florida. We don't know for sure, but this is massive. If we're thinking just like a small little garden, it's probably not what this is talking here. It's probably a region. And Adam is placed in this garden, and he's called to work on this garden. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that this is the greatest job of any human ever. He's in a place that's called luxurious bliss. That's where he's supposed to work. And what we know a little bit later when we get into Genesis chapter 3, this is before sin has entered the world. So there's nothing evil. There's nothing bad. There's no thorns or thistles. There's no weeds. The best way we can imagine it is Adam wakes up every morning working on this garden, and the garden doesn't fight against him. It just works with it. It's just this joy of, of just creativity and fulfillment. He's got the best job any human ever had this side of heaven. So Adam is placed in this garden. He's placed to work in this garden. Now look what it says next. Let's keep going. And look at verse 18. Now this is the key verse. Look at this. Then the Lord God said. Now it's up here on the screens. I want you to read this next part with me. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I want you to to check this out. Up until this point in creation, everything that God has made, he describes as being good. There's been a pattern through Genesis 1. He'll make the plants, and then he'll step back and say, oh, it's good. He'll he'll make the stars in the sky and and the moon and the sun, and he steps back and says, it's good. He makes all the the birds and all the fish, and he steps back and says, it's good. He makes uh, all the animals, then he makes humans, and after he makes humans, he actually steps back and says, it's very good. This is the first time, remember, this is before there's evil, before there's bad in the world. God steps back and he says that there's something that's not good. That should really get our attention. It's been working this pattern. It's good, it's good, it's very good. And then we get to this place where it says, not good. And the one thing in the entire creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 that he says is not good is that that human is all by himself. He's in this huge garden. He's on the planet. He's got all these trees. He's got all, he's got all these pets. The animal kingdom are his pets. He's got the perfect job. He's completely fulfilled. But God says, not good. He's all by himself. He's alone. He doesn't have any relationships. He doesn't have any friendships. Okay, to put this in perspective, I want you to think about this. There are all kinds of different elements to God's creation, and some we appreciate more than others. For example, sunrises. I mean, everyone loves a good sunrise or a good sunset. There's some beautiful flowers. There's some wonderful 
food. I mean, there's so many great parts of God's creation. There's some parts that we don't appreciate quite as much as others. If you're like me, there is one particular creature that is down here in South Florida that I know God declared it was good when he made it, but I'm struggling a little bit with this particular creature. Um, If you are new to South Florida, we have this one kind of duck. It's called a Muscovy duck, okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, when you walk by and you see a duck and you're just like, oh my gosh, what is that? That's the duck I'm referring to. It's got, okay, it's like this splotchy black and white duck. It's got some kind of like mutant red thing all around its beak, okay? And it is, in fact, the Florida Wildlife, uh, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, they describe all the wildlife in Florida, and their title, when you go to the page about the Muscovy ducks, it actually says, nuisance Muscovy ducks. It's how they describe them. They said, they, they actually just come right out and say, they are pests, we don't want them in South Florida, and they give you tips on how to trap them. This is the Conservation Committee, okay, of Florida, all right? They are, if you, these ducks, um, they are the, one of the few ducks on the planet that do not quack. You don't even get a quack. They actually hiss, if you've ever heard them. They hiss. You don't even get a quack out of these things, okay? They are, they are not smart. They are extremely, extremely dumb. They've been known to fly. I, I heard a story of a guy in a convertible sitting at a stoplight. Muscovy duck was flying by, hit him in the side of the head. Okay? Everyone else at the stoplight was laughing so hard it stopped traffic for a little while. All right, I heard from, from a, a, a bird lover that I trust, one of our leaders, his name is Vince Harris, he's one of our elders here, he is a bird lover, bird watcher, and he told me, I have it on good, good authority, that they brought in Muscovy ducks to South Florida initially as a game bird. They brought them here for hunters to enjoy the process, but the, actual, the problem was they let them out in the wild and all these hunters came to town and when the hunters walked up to them, they refused to fly away. They just looked up at them like, hey man, what's going on? They have their gun. Like, this is no fun at all, okay? This is not very good hunting. Okay, you've seen that when every other creature in South Florida, when it's walking across the street and you're driving, they have this good sense to run another direction. They stop in front and watch the car approaching. Have you had that experience with the Muscovy duck? Okay. Even the Muscovy duck, God said, very good. When he said, humans lonely, not good. If you're ever questioning, you're like, ah, I don't need friends, I don't need relationships, I want you to just put this marker in your brain. When you see a Muscovy duck, I want you to remind yourself, even that creature is better than me not investing in my friendships, okay? That is a cue in your mind. He says, the first thing he says through all of creation, man being alone, not good. Now look what he says next. I want you to go down to verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now I want you to see the solution to this. God is creating is creating humans. He sees that Adam is alone. And the way that this is described, it's describing it. Now, we know in reality God doesn't make mistakes. He's not like, man, I made this all wrong. We, we need to add more humans. This is the way that the writer is drawing out how important this feature is. It's God stepping back and declaring it is not good for man to be alone. And here's God's solution. He creates a woman. Now, there's, it's a complicated, complicated process that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But essentially what it says is he took a rib from Adam and out of that he made a woman. And, and we can get hung up on that and say, look, that just doesn't sound right. That just sounds crazy and impossible. You're telling me God made, uh, made people like that out of a rib? That just sounds crazy. Okay, that is another message for a, another time. But let's just stay with this one idea. If you believe in God, if there's a God, then anything is on the table regarding how he wants to work. If there's a God, then at this point, if if he says he wants to make something out of the dust, if he wants to make it out of a rib, if he wants to snap his finger, if he wants to wave a magic wand, if he wants to think it into existence or speak it into existence, if if there's a God, everything is on the table. It's not illogical once you have a God. God can work however he wants, and this is how he's communicating how he did the process in this passage. The main point of this passage here is that God saw the man was not good, and so he had a solution. He made woman, and what we see in the next section is that he then invented marriage. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And these two become one. And through this, it's not just that he creates woman, but he creates the method through which the entire world is going to be populated with human beings. So here's what's so important. He's saying, man, uh, he's saying the answer to loneliness, is it marriage? Well, yes, God in design for humans to be married, but it's so much bigger than that what he's saying here. Because in Genesis 1, when he says, uh, he, he creates man and woman, he says, go multiply and fill the earth. He's creating the way for the entire earth to be filled with human beings. But here's what we see in this passage, and it's so interesting regarding relationships. Here's what we see. We see this incredible vulnerability between, between this husband and wife, between Adam and Eve. At the end of this chapter, it says this, that they were naked and unashamed. It's this powerful concept of the fact that they, they accepted each other. It's not, it's not a, totally a sexual connotation. It's just that saying that they knew each other. They were, they were vulnerable with each other. They were becoming one. Interestingly, if you go to the very beginning of chapter 4 of Genesis, when it talks about the first child that's born to Adam and Eve, it says this, it says, And Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son named Cain. And what's interesting is through the Old Testament, the euphemism for sex for a husband and a wife, the euphemism is to know. What an incredible descriptor of what's, what is at the core of a, of a marriage, what is at the core of that covenant relationship where there's supposed to be sexuality, supposed to be expressed. What is at the core of it is deeply to know one another. At the core of a marriage relationship is two people who, more, maybe more than any other, probably more than any other human being on the planet, they deeply know who that person is. They understand their past. They understand how they work. They understand how they think. They understand their strengths. They understand their weaknesses. They understand their desires, their dreams for this world. They deeply know them. What this passage isn't just simply about marriage. In fact, that idea of deeply knowing someone is also the foundation for all relationships, the foundation for friendship. 
In a purely platonic way, a good friend deeply knows that person. I know their tendencies. I know their past. I know their life story. I know their goals. I, I know what their strengths and weaknesses are. I, it's not just that I, I know their past. And it's not, it's not just simply some person that I knew at one time really well, and if they ever need me, they can call me. No, I know the current events in their life. I'm doing life with this person. What God said is he looked at human beings and he said, it is not good for them to be all by themselves. I don't want just one person running this planet. It's not just one human. I want this planet filled with humans. And he outlines a basic need. We are wired for companionship. We are wired to deeply know other people, friends, and not just in a marriage, but in friendships. We're wired to deeply know others and to be deeply known by others. But there's a little bit of a, a problem with this. There's two problems, in fact. The first problem is, I'm not sure that we really, really believe that that's how we're wired. And the second problem is, is if, even if we do believe it, we don't, often don't know what to do about it. But I'm not sure we deeply, really, really believe in that. It's like, okay, yeah, I know. I got you. All right. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to have friends. I got you. I need to be a little bit better about talking to my friends. I got a buddy I haven't called in a long time. Okay, I got it. I'll give him a phone call. I'll send him a Facebook message, check in on him, find out how he's doing. I understand. Okay, got it. Be a better friend. Let's wrap up this sermon. I, I, I got where you're going. Let's time, time out for a second. I'm not sure that we really deeply understand what this is saying. We're wired for this. This is a deep need that we have. If we're not pursuing this, we're going to short circuit. It's unnatural for us not to be in these relationships. All right, yeah, but is it really like a problem? I think everyone's got some friends. I mean, is it it really a a problem? Listen to this. Um, A survey said, a study showed that in our culture, In the last 35 years, since 1980, loneliness has doubled. In other words, the percentage of people who say, I am lonely, has doubled. In 1980, it was 20% admitted that they were lonely. Recent studies, multiple studies have shown that people in our culture are saying, 40% of them are saying, I'm lonely. That's 40% who are admitting it. That's almost half of our entire culture, is saying that we're lonely. This is a tremendous need. This is something that our culture doesn't do well. This is, this is something that if we just go slip into the slipstream of our culture and just follow that path, we're not going to do very well. And this is a, a basic need that we have. But is it like a really need? I mean, it's not like I'm going to get sick if I'm lonely. Well, actually, studies have shown that being lonely actually affects your health. Listen to some of these things. Um, studies of, of elderly people and social isolation concluded that those without adequate social interaction were twice as likely to die prematurely. Listen to this, a couple others. This is not just particularly for a certain population. This is just across the board. The increased mortality risk of being lonely is comparable to that from smoking. And loneliness is about as twice as dangerous as obesity. It says uh, social isolation, here's some of the things it does to us, impairs our immune function and it boosts inflammation, which can lead to arthritis, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. Isn't that crazy? 
Loneliness can lead to those kinds of things. Um, in one study, they measured, listen, this was fascinating. In one study, they measured brain activity during the sleep of lonely people and non-lonely people. Those who were lonely were far more prone to what they call micro-awakenings, which suggest that the brain is on alert for threats throughout the night. What they're saying is literally being lonely. We are so wired for deep relationships of, being, of knowing people and being known by people. It literally can affect one's health to be lonely. Some of us maybe not, don't have those friendships deep in our, in our life, um, and some of us are not aware of it, but some of us are very aware of it. And because of that, we, we say, okay, yeah, but I, I, don't, I, I got you, but I just don't know what to do about it. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of getting hurt. I'm tired of trying to go after those relationships. We don't know what to do about it. So let's dig into this a little bit. Let me give you a couple of relationship blockers. I want to give you a couple of relationship blockers. Here's the first one. The excuse that we're too busy. We're not too busy for our other basic necessities. At some point, we nourish ourselves, and we get, we're not too busy to get some sleep at some point. At some point, we fill our cars with gas, and we change the oil. Now, maybe we don't do any of those things well or as often as we should, but at some point, we, as busy as we are, we pull the e-brake, and we do the basic necessities. What this is saying is down deep, we're wired for companionship. This is one of those things we have to make time for. Time, saying we're busy, I'm too busy. Sometimes we say, oh, I'm just really, really busy, and we treat busyness as if it's a law of nature that can't be changed. We treat busyness like it's gravity. Well, you know, gravity is keeping my feet on the ground and so I don't float in the atmosphere and also I'm busy. Those are two things I could never change. It's not a law of nature. When I use busyness as an excuse for something that's very important, that's an indictment on me that I'm misprioritizing. Whenever I say, I'm too busy as an excuse, what I'm really saying is, I'm guilty of misprioritization. Saying I'm too busy is a relationship blocker. And and closely tied to that, the second relationship blocker is beware of the virtual. There's a study that we bring up every now and then here at West Pines, and we need to be reminded of it. Um, Television. In our culture, the stats say, some studies show that the average American watches TV for five hours a day. Now, some say it's a little bit less, but here's the, here's the, this is the most fascinating part. The U.S. census that was recently taken said this, watching TV was the leisure activity that occupied the most time for Americans. 2.8 hours per day was a little bit lower. But it says it accounts for more than half of leisure, leisure time on average for those age 15 and over. Now, listen to this. Socializing, such as visiting with friends or attending or hosting social events, was the next most common leisure activity, accounting for 43 minutes per day. So check this out. What that means is, as a culture, we watch almost three hours a day of fictional people and their social life. So we watch the social dynamics of what happens in, a, in an abbey in Downton, or we watch the social dynamic of people being chased by zombies. Okay, we, we watch this fictional social dynamics. We watch that, we watch fake social dynamics four and a half times more than we actually interact with a real live human as a culture. Four and a half more times we spend, uh, uh, as a conservative estimate, we spend watching television, entering into a fake reality, a fake social setting, than actually engaging in real relationships. 
What about social media, another virtual outlet for relationships? Listen to what one study said. A recent study of Facebook users found that the amount of time you spend on the social network is inversely related to how happy you feel throughout the day. The more time on Facebook, the less happy you are. Some of you are like, amen to that. Get behind that. The more time on Facebook. Why is that? Because when we, what we present of ourselves on Facebook... It's like today's modern-day version of what used to be at a 10-year uh, reunion from school. You go to your 10-year reunion or your 20-year reunion, and it's the cleaned-up version of yourself, right? You come in, you just bought new clothes, you got a new haircut, you've reworked the story of the last 10, 20 years to the best version of it. You rented a fancy car, yeah, this is my new car that I got here. You know, you, It's the best version of yourself. And what do we do now on social media? We do the same thing, but all day, every day. We The best pictures of ourselves, no one just takes a picture of themselves first thing in the morning, like, this is how bad I look. <laughs> no one does that. We, it's the cleaned up version. We tell the good spin on how we're spending our activities or how our relationships are, the good pictures of all the things that we're doing. And so what we have in social media, in the virtual realm, that's not real relationships. It's not vulnerability. It's not truly knowing each other. Beware of the virtual. So there's two things that, I, that we can do. I want you to write these two things down. What's the next steps? Okay, help us know what the next two things are. Here's the first one is make the time. See, it, this is one of those things, if it's a priority, we actually have to wire it into our lives. We actually have to sink it into our lives. We actually, if you're listening to this and you're saying, okay, I need to get serious about this. I need to invest in friendships. We actually have to sit down. Literally a way to respond to this passage this week would be to wake up 30 minutes early tomorrow morning, get the coffee ready early, set the alarm, wake up, and sit down and actually look through your calendar and say, I am going to have to carve out time to invest in relationships because that's how God's wired me. And the same way you have to carve out time and make it a priority, time to spend with your spouse, time to spend with your kids, we've got to carve out time and make it a priority to hang out with friends and get to know friends deeply and share deeply. Guys, Men, we tend to be the worst at this. We tend to say, ah, I'm fine. You know, I, you know I, we, we talk every now and then at work. You know, I sent him a text message the other day. That's a good relationship, right? You know, it's, 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 that's enough. I don't need good friends. I'm, I'm on an island. I'm by myself. I don't need anybody. Well, God just said you're wired to need that. It's the one thing in the first two chapters that he said, not good. You need it. And here's the second thing. Make the time, and here's the second thing. Take the risk. Sometimes we have the outlets. We have the opportunities to do that. We have the outlets to step in and build friendships, but we're just tired of getting hurt. We're tired of risking. This is both men and women. We, sometimes we ah, just it's just too vulnerable to do that. I, I'm afraid of how I'll look. I'm afraid of getting hurt. Or, or one time I tried that. Last time I tried that, I got hurt. It's time to take that next step. Make the time. Take the risk. You know, at West Pines, we have outlets to foster that. Inside your bulletin, you'll see opportunities to jump into a community group, men's ministry, women's ministry, a serving team. You may be here saying, you know, I really don't know anybody here. I'm new to software. I don't really know anyone. Take a step. Take a step. Get to know people there. It's an opportunity to come in and serve. It's not a time to come in and say, I'm going to get my needs met. It's a time to say, okay, look, we're supposed to be in relationship. I'm going to step in and I'm going to serve. And you know what it's going to take? It's going to take being consistent. 
making it a priority. If you've committed to, to being a part of a community group, be committed. Not just when you have enough energy to, not just when, when you feel like it, not just because you want to get something out of it. Do it to be part of that group. Make it a commitment to be part of that group. Take that step and get involved with the women's ministry, the men's ministry. Take that step. And, and what those are designed to do is not only a place where we can learn to serve each other, but it's a springboard into relationships. Maybe say, I'm in one of those environments. Well, then take the next step. Invest a little more in those friendships outside one of those environments. Get together with those people. Start sharing life with them, sharing who you are. Make that step. Take that risk in those environments to share a little bit more vulnerably about who you are. Every one of us is called. This is how we're wired. We're called to take that next step. And it might be scary. It might be something that we don't want to do, we're afraid to do, but this is something that God wired us to do. And I want you to hear, as we close, I want you to hear this quote by a famous theologian. His name is C.S. Lewis. I want you to hear this quote because it's very powerful. Listen to how he describes relationships and love. Look what he says. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round your hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Church, we're wired for deep relationships. And what we know as we look around at ourselves and our culture, we tend to not do that well in our culture. It takes time and it takes risk and it all boils down. Do we believe God or not? Do we believe God that he says, this is how I wired you, this is important. It's not good to avoid relationships. You're wired to be known, to, to know people deeply and to be deep, deeply known by them. Are we willing to make the time and take the risk? Maybe if you're feeling a little bit like vulnerable, like, man, I just don't know if I can take that risk. Well, then let me remind you, this is what should spur you on if nothing else will. Do you realize the great risk that God took to be in relationship with you? We were separated from God by deep offenses called our sin. Every time we have a a bad thought, a selfish thought, a greedy thought, an envious thought. We say a gossiping word or a word that lacks a little bit of integrity. Every time we do one of those things, it's an offense against God. But he looked down and every one of us have done it. Every one of us should be separated from God because of our sin. But God looked down at us and he said, no, I can't leave it like that. Each one of us, he looked down and said, they're my creation. I love them. They're my child. I've got to rebuild that relationship. And so he came down in the form of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, perfectly obedient to God's laws, and he offered himself the greatest sacrifice for us. He died on the cross, taking all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame on himself. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, washing it all away. The Son of God gave his life so that we could be forgiven and washed clean, so that we can have a relationship with God. God himself wants a relationship with you. That's how much he loves you. And if 
the most important relationship you could possibly have is with the one who invented you. He knows you more intimately than any other person ever could. He's been with you every second, every millisecond of your life. He's known every thought. And he says, I love you more than you can imagine. He's saying, I want a relationship with you so bad that I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross. Maybe this morning you say, look, I'm lonely, but I want to start the most important relationship with Jesus. I want to start it with God. I want to know my creator. I want to know that all of the sin that's in between us, all the bad things I've done or will ever do is permanently forgiven because of Jesus and that I can walk in relationship with him. You can be completely reconciled to God permanently this morning. If that's you, I want to just lead you in a prayer of just receiving the gift of Jesus' death on the cross, receiving salvation as a gift. If that's you, I want to lead you in this simple prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, would you just pray this prayer right there in your heart? Just right there between you and God, make these words your words to God. Thank you for loving me so much, God. You're not unaware of my sins, my faults, my flaws. The times I have disappointed you, the times I've abandoned you, you're not unaware of all those things. But thank you that you love me anyway. And thank you that you overcame all of them by the death of Jesus. And thank you that you washed me clean permanently. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose again from the dead and that I will spend eternity with you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.